all this past week, I've been wondering if that announcement about the sabbatical would be awkward. And that question has now been answered for all of us, hasn't it? And I, I do want you to know, Daryl, th where's Daryl? Where'd he go? There he is. He's in the back hiding. Thank you, Daryl, for your kind words. Let me just say this. I love you. And I'm very grateful for um, the opportunity to uh, take some time uh, to, to be recharged. And I, I covet your prayers that it will be a productive time by God's measure that I'll return uh, more useful to you. And um, the, the most use I can be to you right now is to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nahum. That's enough drama for now, isn't it? Let's, let's open our Bibles to the book of Nahum. And, and if your Bible is sort of used to flipping over to Jonah, um, you're, you're okay. So just, just go forward a few more pages and you'll find um, the prophecies of Micah and then Nahum. And, and as you're turning there, I want us to just think about that wonderful psalm we read together as a congregation. Psalm 145 in verse 4 says this, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Do you realize that wonderful truth is telling us that it, it's the privilege of this generation, uh, any generation, to make known God's glory to the next generation. But how many of you know it isn't just our privilege, it is also our purpose. It, it, it is God's design, God's purpose, that each generation of his people will make known God's glory to the next generation. Our children and our grandchildren are meant to hear of God's glory and see God glorified in us and around us. This is our privilege. And this is our purpose. What happens when, when just one generation grows lazy, complacent in its mission to the next generation? I mean, what, what happens when one generation pursues its own glory and does not live to God's glory? What happens? Well, today, that question is answered in this little book of Nahum. Nahum, as many of you know, is the sequel to the book of Jonah. Do you like sequels? I like sequels. And Nahum answers the question for us, whatever happened to Nineveh? What happened to those people? Whatever happened to that great city whose pagan people, from least to greatest, from the commoners to the king, repented of their sins because they believed in God as the one true God was declared to them through his word and through his prophet Jonah. Whatever happened to those people? Nahum's answer is both sobering and salient to our time. The prophecy begins with the burden against Nineveh. The burden against Nineveh. Nothing is more terrifying than the knowledge that God is against you. And yet just one century after Jonah, 
The prophet Nahum comes along and says to God's own people, God is against Nineveh. And Nineveh was eventually so severely judged by God, obliterated so thoroughly, that no trace of its location was even discovered until the mid-1800s. That's amazing. Think of that. For hundreds of years, people in the ancient world walked through that part of the world and thought that perhaps Nineveh's immense size and grandeur was just a myth. Surely it couldn't have been that great because there's no trace of it that anyone had seen. So this very chilling and sometimes graphic prophecy of Nahum against Nineveh and against the kingdom of Assyria shows us this, the belief and repentance of one generation does not automatically carry over to future generations. I wonder if that might be appropriate for the church in America today. You cannot be grandfathered into a right standing with God. Your parents and your grandparents' faith, their shelter from God's wrath for sin, do not automatically become yours. Jonah showed us our God of mercy. Nahum shows us our God of justice. Let's read chapter 1 together. Did you find Nahum yet? I gave you plenty of time. It's not on me. All right. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. From you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, they, though they are safe and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through you. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. 
For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So begins the book of Nahum. Not long after Jonah's lifetime, Nineveh quickly became a society whose people had forgotten the belief in God and the repentance toward God of their parents and grandparents. Just try to picture such a society. I mean, just try to picture what happens when one generation ceases to declare God's works to another. What a difference a generation makes. What a difference, church, this generation makes. The man, Nahum, is mentioned only in this book, so we we know almost nothing about him. Uh, We're not even really sure uh, what on earth an Elkishite is. Uh, but suffice it to say, Nahum was someplace called Elkosh. There's disagreement among scholars about where that even was. Um, some say uh, perhaps he was from uh, northern Israel, from, from the, the area of Galilee, uh, maybe even from Capernaum. If you say that slowly, Capernaum, city of Nahum, you know, perhaps. More than likely, though, Nahum was from Judah, the southern kingdom. Because by the time of of Nahum's writing, uh, Assyria had already overrun the northern kingdom of Israel, just like Hosea had had prophesied. The ten tribes of Israel have have been violently deported, scattered throughout the known world, never to be reassembled. And Assyria is now at her peak strength. And she is harassing the southern kingdom of Judah. There's a map here that it it occurs to me as I look at it is almost entirely pointless. But but just never mind. Never mind. You you can see in the upper right, Nineveh, and they're coming down toward Jerusalem. That's Judah, and I could have just said that. So... um, Here's, here's what, I, what we want to know. Um, in just one generation, the gospel that had transformed Nineveh has fallen on deaf ears in the two generations that followed. Just a hundred years. Assyria went back to her proud, indulgent, uh, idolatrous, violent ways. She was used of God in that sense to destroy Jonah's home country, uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah was actually buried in Nineveh. Isn't that interesting? And after the ruins of Nineveh were discovered, um, the tomb of Jonah, or what is being called the tomb of Jonah, was discovered. 
Um, and as you might imagine, stuff was built there and all of snack bars and all of that kind of stuff. But, but nonetheless, that's the deal with Jonah, right? By the time of Nahum's prophecy, just a hundred years, just a century after Jonah, the northern kingdom of Israel had ceased to exist. And now God will judge Assyria. And what's the message in all of that? No one escapes God's justice. No one. It looks like that sometimes when you look at the wide world. But the scriptures show us again and again and again. And history testifies that the God who governs human history has declared that no one, no nation, no individual escapes his justice. Both Israel and Assyria are judged for failing to bring God glory. They're judged for failing to live to his honor. To make his name great. And verse 1, see, see what progress we're making? We're still in verse 1. It says it's, it's the book of the vision of Nahum. Nahum is given spiritual eyes to see his world in its reality. What, what really is. Not just what he thinks it is. And, and Nahum is given spiritual eyes to see God for who he really is. Not just what people say about who God is. And friends, if we need anything now, it is that God would give us spiritual eyes to see our world rightly and to see our God rightly, the God of the Bible. Nahum will help us gain this vision. Notice in verse 2, we meet... Yahweh, the the covenant-keeping God of his people. And and there's nothing ambiguous in these words about what our God is like. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Do you realize that God is jealous for his glory among the nations? You mean God cares about nations? Yeah, absolutely. God is jealous for his name to be exalted among all people, in all nations, at all times. In fact, in many ways, the Old Testament um, is a record of how loyalty to God or disloyalty to God uh, either blesses or curses nations and people. Proverbs 14.34 says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Does God care about nations? Hmm. The Old Testament prophets were, were always declaring that a lack of faith and a lack of loyalty to God, a lack of the righteousness and the justice of God in a society will be the downfall of that society just as it will be the downfall of that individual. Why? Because God is jealous for his glory. He is the glorious one. Amen? God is all about exalting his glory. Listen, do you realize you were made for the glory of God? Do you realize that you exist for the glory of God? 
Is that the trajectory of your life right now? Living for the glory of God? Do you have a sense of that? The very best life we can experience is a life lived to the glory of God. And the most blessed nation on earth will be a nation whose people are jealous for God's glory. Listen to Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. David is saying, look, uh, the, the people who belong to God are happy people. They're blessed people. Their condition is desirable. In fact, that was Israel and Judah's role in the world, wasn't it? The nations were meant to see the blessing of being God's people. The wonder of what it is to be in right relationship with God, a covenant-keeping God. That word jealous is a a covenant word. Remember, we saw that when we were working our way through Hosea, those of you who were here for that. When a relationship between God and his people is entered into, it's exclusive of all other parties on both sides. How many of you know God will have no other people but those whom he has chosen to be his people? He is faithful. And how many of you know God's people are to have no other gods but him? We read that somewhere, didn't we? In our study of the Ten Commandments. Are you loyal to God? What does the Bible call people who are disloyal to God? Well, verse 2, it calls such people his adversaries, his enemies. Just think about that. If you live in disloyalty to God, God is against you. Says who? Says God. Whoever lives in a way that contradicts God's will is his enemy. And so Nahum comes along to God's chosen people in Judah, and he says with respect to Nineveh, God reserves wrath for his enemies. Is that your vision of the world today? Is that your vision of our God today? Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Hmm. It's a grave mistake to presume that God's mercy toward sinners, toward his enemies, is unending from one generation to the next, isn't it? The long-suffering, strong mercy of God had been gloriously displayed in the experience of Jonah's time in Nineveh. But the belief and repentance of that generation did not guarantee saving faith for the generations that followed. As soon as people stopped living for the glory of God, they were heading down a path of chaos and destruction. And I invite you to look at our culture today We who live in this one nation under God, as our money says, a money that we worship as if it's God. 
does it not seem to you that whatever was going on in past generations in this place, the present generation seems to be headed in a direction of chaos and destruction? It's almost as if God knows ahead of time that this stuff is going to happen. Listen, if your sense of safety and security from God's wrath is based on the fact that your parents were Christian or or your, your grandpa was a minister, that sort of thing, you're mistaken. You know, I was uh, talking to a young couple preparing for marriage a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, not members of this fellowship, so don't look around the room. Um, not members of any fellowship as it would turn out. And so I was just asking them about their, about their faith and are you, are you Christians? And um, yes, says the bride-to-be. Uh, my dad is a Christian, but you know, he didn't want to force that on us kids. We're not like that. Yes, says the groom. In fact, my uncles, all four of them, were Southern Baptist ministers. Now, that, obviously, that's intensely Christian, right? Four Southern Baptist ministers in one family? That's crazy. And li- in a good way. But listen, that, it's got nothing to do with whether that young man knows Jesus. And by God's grace, their hearts seem tender to the gospel. It's as if God is calling them to himself. That's my prayer. But listen, I mention that simply because there would have been people in ancient Nineveh who thought that God's mercy toward their parents and grandparents was a spiritual credit card that they could play with even as they lived in wickedness themselves. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen today in our time? And Nahum says, the Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. In other words, it's foolish to mistake God's long-suffering towards sin for his weakness. Though many do. And it is foolish to mistake God's patience as his indifference to sin. Though many do. The Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. Nineveh was was an amazing city. Even by the standards of today's cities, we would have looked at it and thought, wow, this is really something. And for 200 years, the Assyrians terrorized the world with their barbaric, bloody practices. And it was unthinkable for the people in Nahum's time that Assyria itself, let alone Nineveh, could ever be beaten, defeated. The wall around Nineveh proper was seven miles in circumference. In places, the city wall was 100 feet high. 200-foot towers were placed strategically all along that wall, And the walls were wide enough for chariots to run either side by side or in opposite directions. And you you can see why people in the ancient world would have thought, nah, all that stuff about Nineveh being great can't be. I mean, there's there's not even a trace of the place now. 
Perhaps most importantly, as we learned in our study of Jonah, Nineveh was right on the Tigris River. And it, that was a natural defense system for the city. It was a water supply for people who lived in, in a very dry land. And it also supplied moats that were around the city's inner walls. This place could not be defeated, or so it seemed. But what are we reading? We're, we're reading a vision of reality. We're reading a vision of what really is, not what it seems to be. And we're reading a vision that Nahum was given of who God really is, not, people who, not what people say about God, who he really is. Northern Israel has already been obliterated by the Assyrians, and, and now Judah faces almost certain destruction from the Assyrians as well. And God sends the prophet Nahum to tell his people who are looking at all of the scary, terrifying stuff happening in their world, the hope of God's people is found only in God himself. That's, that's what you must keep your gaze on, Judah. Keep your gaze on your God. Not the scary circumstances you see in front of you. The hope of God's people is found only in God himself. And look at what hope there is for those who trust in God. Look at verse 4. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. I wonder if that's going on now. Bashan and Carmel wither and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. it do you realize we're being told that creation itself is controlled by the creator? Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign say-so, if you will. Every storm, every whirlwind, every fire is sent from God. You say, well, I don't think God would do that. It doesn't matter a hill of beans whether you think God would do that. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God who is. He commands the sea. He ordains droughts. Pleasant, lush, productive places, that's what Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon are referring to, are only so because God commands them to be so. And they cease to be so when God says so. You get the idea. And when God says he is against you because you're against him, well, friend, you have a serious problem. And that's exactly what Nahum wants the people of Judah to understand with respect to Nineveh despite what things look like. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. No one can stand before God's indignation, his wrath toward all that robs him of glory. No man, no one born in Adam, can endure the fierceness of his anger. 
God says that. Are you prepared to meet this God? How do you answer this God who is jealous for his glory as one who has not really lived toward his glory? One for whom wrath is reserved. The destruction of Nineveh is described in chapter 2. And Lord willing, we'll spend a little bit of time in that next week. I would encourage you to read ahead. You're allowed to do that. Maybe don't read it right before bedtime. It's pretty rough sledding. (laughs) But God judges Nineveh. And the destruction of Nineveh illustrates God's resolve to defend his glory in all of creation, throughout all of human history, among all people. How many of you know the Bible says all sin will be punished? Nobody gets away with stuff. Because all sin robs God of his glory. And by now, some of you are looking at me really puzzled, thinking, well, why in the world is this sermon called The Goodness and Severity of God? It's all severity, isn't it? Well, first of all, all people must know of God's wrath if they are to know God's favor is desirable. When a nation departs from God and God's ways, judgment is near. You say, well, I don't think so. Just read Nahum. When a nation begins to promote its right to kill off its own kids, judgment is near. That same thing was going on in ancient Judah. When a nation begins to legitimize and normalize all manner of sexual deviancy, judgment is near. When a nation's people worship God's good gifts and hoard them, but thumb their noses at the God who gives them, judgment is near. If we think God will always remain silent with respect to America's sins, we need to read the book of Nahum. One day God breaks his silence and he says, Behold, I am against you. Is there any hope in a prophecy like this? Is God only severe? Look at verse 7. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. What a strange message this is. I mean, can Nahum not really decide what he saw from God so he's kind of playing both both sides? Severity and goodness? No, not really. Nahum, whose very name means comfort or consolation, wrote this prophecy under the influence of the Spirit, obviously, uh, about Nineveh. But Nahum actually wrote this to Judah. This is for God's people. Here is a message about God's enemies, but it's for God's people. Are you following me? Nahum writes to bring comfort, to, to encourage God's loyal people, 
and, and, and leaders like the righteous King Josiah in Judah, that the same divine power that exerts vengeance on God's enemies shelters those whom God loves, those who love him. In other words, God's people. Matthew Henry says this, his commentary on Nahum, by the way, is, is an excellent help. I would recommend it to you. He says, the wrath of God is here revealed from heaven against his enemies. His favor and mercy are here assured to his faithful, loyal subjects. See, our, our God is a stronghold for his people, though they are surrounded by evil. Though the enemy, as it were, is knocking on the door. Have, have you run to him? Are, are, are you safe in him? God shelters his own, even as he judges the wicked. How exactly does he do this? Well, you might remember during our study of Hosea, we, we trusted the Lord to help us sniff out the fragrance of grace, the fragrance of the gospel, even in the middle of really dark judgment oracles like the one we're reading now. Do you remember that? Please tell me you remember that. It was not that long ago. All right. Do, do you detect the fragrance of grace in Nahum chapter 1? I mean, did you just get a whiff of it? Anybody? This is one of the rare times you can talk in church. Okay, where, where is it? Where, do you, where did you smell it? Nobody wants to go out there, I know. Look, look at verse 15. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Have you, have you, does that sound familiar at all? O oh, Judah, keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He, he is utterly cut off. You know, the prophet Isaiah had told God's people something very similar. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And we don't get too excited about feet these days. I mean, mo mostly we keep them covered, right? And I think that's appropriate, by the way. Um, we don't consider them beautiful. But here's the thing. That, that's because we get most of our information electronically now. Can you imagine how wonderful would be the sound of footsteps coming your way with good news of God's protection when the enemy is knocking on the gates and the smoke from the nation that was just destroyed by that enemy is still in the air. How beautiful are the feet who bring good news. How precious would be the feet bringing good news to God's hard-pressed people, frightened people in Nahum's day. As Judah's leaders labored to do God's work, a few of them anyway, Josiah among them, can you imagine how encouraging a message like this would have been? Yes, God's enemies are against you, <laughs> but Almighty God is for you. 
That's the message of Nahum. And that is God's message for his people today. The message to Assyria is severe. If God is against you, friend, it doesn't matter who is for you. That's completely not relevant. The message to Judah is all goodness. If God is for you, who can be against you? Your God reigns. And you know, when you believe in this God, do you believe in God? When you believe in this God, you believe his word, and your life reflects what his word tells you is true, whether your eyes tell you it feels true or not. So that was the challenge to the people in Nahum's day. Their scenery was really scary. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows. What what is that talking about? Keep serving God. Keep obeying him. You've been given a vision that allows you now to see reality, to see the world as it really is from heaven's perspective. And you've been given a vision to see your God for who he really is. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see more of how and why God judged Nineveh. I've been painting with a pretty broad brush and we're running out of time. Suffice it to say for now, God utterly destroyed Nineveh. God brought an apparent invincible empire to ruin, to protect Nahum's Judah, but you know, also to declare a far greater victory. Do you realize that God's judgment upon the nations throughout human history has always been to picture a far greater victory that God has planned for his people? Have you heard this before? Verse 15 of Nahum 1, it was an echo of Isaiah, right? But both of those verses are echoed in our New Testament. Listen to Romans 10:15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's you're thinking, well, wait a minute, that's Christmas, isn't it? That's a Christmas verse. This is to do with Jesus, isn't it? God's good and severe justice of Isaiah's day in in Nahum's day declared a far greater victory for his people, the, the, the victory that God has been promising his people throughout human history. A ruthless, wicked kingdom holds this world's people captive and in fear. Do you see how much fear is in the world today? Do you see a people imprisoned by the sin nature? This empire led by Satan himself is comprised of citizens characterized by the sin of Adam and Eve and characterized by the sin of Nineveh, characterized by the sin that you and me are born into. And it's the victory of Christ over this great enemy, this kingdom, 
that is pictured in all of God's judgment upon the nations. God's making a statement when he wipes out Nineveh. You haven't seen anything yet. Remember, God is jealous for his glory, and he will avenge his enemies. Satan was crushed when Christ went to Calvary for you. Jesus fought for you with his death on that cross, didn't he? Do you see what a mighty warrior your Savior is? And he rose again in glory. Jesus is the king of glory because he is God himself. Jesus took God's judgment, God's wrath for all of his people's sin and rose again. And Paul says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. What what is God jealous for? His glory. How does any man or woman born in sin as we are glorify God? You must be in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are, are, Are you believing in this Jesus who is God, who came to deliver you from a kingdom that will be judged with finality. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of God's anger? Only Jesus. Only the man who is God. The one mediator between God and man. Do you know him to be your stronghold in these scary times? Do you see that the hope of God's people is only found in God himself? Do you realize that even now Jesus is establishing a righteous kingdom? A kingdom of liberty whose citizens have been set free from the curse of sin, not just the penalty of sin, which is God's wrath in hell eternally, but the power of sin to dominate their lives. Is that, is that going on with you? This is always the work of Jesus when he's your king. God is building a kingdom of righteousness for his people and with his people. What do I mean by that? In Christ, sinners are being saved from sin's power to rule over us. Even now, Christ is exerting his reign, exerting his rule in your life, you who know him as Savior. You say, well, that's not my experience as a Christian at all. Well, then, friend, you're not a Christian. This is always the fruit that is born by those attached to Christ, the true vine. Our king takes us just as we are, praise God. (laughs) But he doesn't leave us that way, does he? God is restoring his people from all the nations as his image bearers for his glory. 
And I really think um, a judgment oracle like this one here in Nahum serves as kind of a double encouragement. It encourages us to be reminded that if God is for us and he is, we who are his people, it doesn't matter who or what is against us. Our God reigns, amen? Uh, and it also encourages us to, to turn to him and, and live for him, to, to live out that purpose that he's created us for, to bring him glory. The kids and grandkids of, of once penitent people in Nineveh mistook God's mercy for his indifference about whether their lives brought him glory or not. What a, what a difference a generation makes. One generation must declare to the next how good is our God to his people. How severe is our God to his enemies. Matthew's gospel says this of our king, of Jesus. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not pour out, put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. This is the work that God is doing right now in real time on planet earth. Building a kingdom for the one true king who is Jesus. Do you know this king? You belong to this king? Ray Ortland, in his, um, he, he wrote a commentary on Romans called A Passion for God. I want to just, just read a little snippet of it for you before we close. Don't try to write this down. You'll hurt yourself. Uh, so just, just listen to this. Um, Every generation of Christians must be retaught afresh the basic truths of our faith. The church is always one generation away from total ignorance of the gospel. And we today are making rapid progress toward that ruinous goal. Rather than carelessly assume the gospel, we must aggressively, deliberately, fully, and passionately teach and preach the gospel. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. If we do not intentionally search them out, we will miss them. Well said. Well said. In Nahum, we, we search out the, the wonders of God's goodness and severity, and it brings us joy. It, it gives us hope. And it, and it points us to our purpose, to live to the glory of God. God did exactly what he said he was going to do in Nineveh. And God will do exactly what he says he's going to do in conquering his enemies. Amen? A complete triumph for his people. And a complete triumph in his people. All through the work of Christ. Let's let our Lord have the last word. Listen to what he says to us in Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this prophecy 
this vision that you gave to Nahum. Lord, we thank you that it is not some ancient thing that has no place in our lives today. It is your very word to our hearts, Lord, to remind us that you are an awesome God. You are awesome and infinite in all of your attributes, including your wrath and including your goodness. So, Lord, I pray that you would use this truth to magnify Christ to us, Lord, to see what a stronghold you have given to us in Jesus. Lord, that we would flee to you, that that we would rest safe, confident, assured in your work for us, Lord, that we might cooperate with your work in us, that you might be glorified in your people. We pray this, Jesus, for your namesake. Amen.